Thanks, Rick. Uh, and I'm Peter. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yes, uh, Sasha and I dreamed this up together. There was an ulterior motive. We've actually known each other for quite some time, and it was a joy to have him here for a semester, but I knew he would be so busy that unless we planned some gig, you know, the number of occasions which we would actually get together might not be uh, what we had hoped. So, you know, we, we wanted to get this one on the calendar. And the format that um, we've decided to follow is that I'm going to speak, I, I hope for not more than 15 minutes, uh, about the general constitutional framework uh, within which we think about emergency power under the American Constitution. Um, Professor Domrin will then uh, speak for perhaps 20 minutes about the Russian picture, and then if it occurs to me to say anything sensible by way of comparison, uh, I might take two or three minutes to do that and then open up the rest of the time for conversation. Uh, the topic of federal emergency power is um, obviously broad. It is hardly mentioned at all in the text of the U.S. Constitution. Uh, one direct reference to the possibility of an emergency, of course, is Article 1, Section 9, Clause 2, which says the privilege of the writ of habeas corpus shall not be suspended unless when in cases of rebellion or invasion the public safety may require it. Uh, this provision in the Constitution occurs in Article 1, which describes the powers of Congress, so the assumption is that it is up to Congress uh, to suspend the writ of habeas corpus, but it's written, uh, unfortunately, in the passive voice, and of course this gave rise to... Um, President Lincoln's claim during the Civil War to be able to suspend habeas corpus, although he quickly turned to Congress uh, to ratify what he had done. Now, the fact that the Constitution hardly mentions emergencies is usually not any kind of a critical problem because Congress does have such wide-ranging legislative authority that it's typically more than sufficient to provide through statutes for emergency situations. Uh, Congress, as you know, regulates uh, both interstate and foreign commerce, uh, which allows Congress to regulate phenomena that are not themselves strictly commercial, but which may have a direct bearing on commerce. And that, of course, would include a lot of emergencies that we might think of as public health emergencies or, or uh, emergencies of public safety. Um, they get to constitute judicial tribunals lower than the Supreme Court, which might include emergency tribunals. Uh, they make the rules for governing and regulating the land and naval forces. They provide for a calling forth of the militia to execute federal law, suppress insurrection, and repel invasion. And Congress has used these powers to create a wide variety of statutory authorities that the president may use um, in emergency circumstances. And they're typically triggered by a presidential finding that there is an emergency uh, that uh, triggers the statute. So the key example of this, uh, one of the best known, is something called the International Emergency Economic Powers Act, which its friends call IEPA. And uh, IEPA allows the president to react to peacetime national emergencies in the face of unusual threats to the American economy that are posed by sources outside the United States. And when such an emergency exists, the president has uh, a substantial range of statutory powers, and he relied on this statute, for example, he being at that time President Carter, in uh, responding to the national emergency that he deemed created by the seizure of our hostages in Tehran. So he did a number of things like blocking the movement of all Iranian assets in the United States, this is say, I'm sorry, freezing their assets, blocking any transaction involving Iranian property in the United States. These were uh, reactions, kind of executive reactions to the emergency that Congress had specifically authorized. 
Now, of course, the greater controversy uh, really surrounds the scope of emergency power that resides in the executive branch when Congress has not granted specific legislative authority. And these debates uh, that exist, and we live among them now, are probably best understood if we keep in mind uh, two possible distinctions. One would be a distinction between things that presidents might do that would actually affect the rights and responsibilities of individual Americans or U.S. persons uh, because permanent resident aliens in the United States also have constitutional rights. So I'll, maybe I should say U.S. persons instead of citizens. Um, there are actions that uh, presidents might take in emergencies that would affect such people's rights and others that would not. For example, if, you know, you could imagine, um, I don't know, some uh, accident on a piece of federal property that might, I would imagine the president has statutory authority, but if he didn't have statutory authority to uh, prevent water on a piece of federal land from flooding uh, an important federal file cabinet, he could probably get somebody to do that, um, but it would have no implications for anybody's uh, rights under the Constitution. So, but, so one distinction we might want to make is between things that the president can do that do implicate rights and, and other things. And the other distinction would be uh, emergencies that are entirely domestic and emergencies that might be considered uh, matters of foreign affairs. Well, there, there's very little learning on emergencies that the president can address that don't affect the legal rights of U.S. persons because the assumption generally is the president, if the president can solve a problem without affecting anybody's rights, uh, he probably has the authority to do it. But when he is having such an effect, that is, when the thing that the president wants to do would actually affect the liberty or the property interests of U.S. persons, and we're talking about his domestic powers, that is, the emergency is not triggered by foreign, military, or national security concerns, then the general consensus is that his powers would be quite limited. Um, the, perhaps the best piece of scholarship on this very narrow topic was produced by Professor Monahan at Columbia. Uh, Henry Monahan is a very well-known uh, politically conservative constitutional scholar who has argued that in these situations, that is, domestic emergencies, where the president would like to respond but in a way that would actually affect uh, the rights of U.S. persons, at most what he could claim, without, unless Congress has given him a, le a legislative authority, is a very narrow, what Monaghan calls, protective power. That is, he might be uh, allowed under the Constitution to take some narrowly tailored steps that are you know, precisely calculated to protect officers and employees, instrumentalities or facilities of the federal government. But this protective power is quite limited. It would be, um, again, only uh, available to the extent of you know, the exigency that requires it, and it couldn't be used just to protect Americans at large. It could only be used to protect the uh, officers and employees, instrumentalities or facilities of the federal government. So examples of this would be a couple of very well-known cases from uh, the late 19th and early 20th century, one in which a president of the United States, without apparent express statutory authority, was aware that a Supreme Court justice was traveling out west, his life had been threatened, and assigned a U.S. Marshal to protect him. The U.S. Marshal actually wound up uh, killing the, um, the person he believed to be the assailant. And this was held to be uh, authorized, and Monaghan would say, well, this is an example where he was responding to a, an emergency to protect an officer of the U.S. government, very narrowly tailored, 
whether or not Congress had authorized it was still okay. Um, a, a more interesting example, in a way, was a decision by President Taft to disallow um, the extraction of oil from U.S.-owned mineral lands prior to World War I on the, with the thought that even though Congress, by statute, had allowed the extraction of the oil, um, he sent a message to Congress saying, look, we might be at war. We, being the U.S. government, might need this oil uh, before we allow others to extract it so that we have to buy it back. I'd like you to think about this again. And the court uh, upheld that emergency response as well. So this kind of thing is quite rare, but there is arguably some emergency power, but a, a very narrow power in this context. So the greatest excitement, of course, deals with emergencies that do have national security implications. And everybody who discusses the presidency at least starts out from one foundational premise, and that is, if the president has authority to do something, he can only get it from one of two places. Either the Constitution has given, this, given him this authority, or Congress by statute has given him this authority. There's no other place uh, from which the president could derive this power. The question is how to think about the president's authority looking at Article I of the Constitution, which gives Congress its powers, and Article II of the Constitution that gives the president his powers. How does the president sort of think about these things kind of all together? And the uh, canonical text, the, um, the universally cited opinion on this for the last uh, over 50 years, is Justice uh, Jackson's opinion concurring in the Supreme Court's decision in the Youngstown Steel case. As you probably know, uh, Youngstown Steel invalidated a 1952 executive order in which President Truman ordered the Secretary of Commerce to take control of most U.S. steel mills because he thought that a pending steel strike would impede continued steel production that was needed to prosecute the Korean War. The majority of justices, the, the, Truman lost the case six to three, the majority justices, all, whatever their rationale, they all were unanimous on a point that the dissent did not dispute. That is, all, all nine justices agreed that the president could not claim any authority to do this because he was commander-in-chief. The commander-in-chief clause was universally regarded by the judges as irrelevant to whether the president could seize these steel mills in a situation where the United States, although engaged in a military confrontation, was not fighting a declared war. So that was off the table. In that situation, two justices, Justice Hugo Black and Justice William Douglas, um, basically said the president was just powerless to do what he did because what he did had an obvious implication for the property rights of U.S. persons, namely the owners of the steel mills. He didn't have the power to legislate. The only way their rights could be affected was by legislation. Without a statute, he could do nothing. And that was their fairly cut and dried view. Two other justices, um, Justice Clark and Justice Burton, were of a, a somewhat different opinion. They said if there was no legislation at all on this, maybe the president would be deemed authorized to react to the emergency. But Congress had thought about this problem. They had considered that there might be labor strikes that would cause national security emergencies, and they had provided certain procedures that the president could invoke. Now, the president thought that they would be too time-consuming, but he didn't get to make the law. Congress had legislated in this area, and it was their view that because Congress had specifically legislated in the area, the president did not have any residual authority to do something that went beyond 
what Congress had expressly contemplated. So Justice Jackson, um, looking at this, had a somewhat more nuanced view. And he elaborated what he called a, a somewhat oversimplified uh, tripartite grouping of, of practical situations. He had three what he called practical situations, and they may be oversimplified, but this is an opinion that has shaped discussion of presidential emergency power uh, ever since. In one situation, he said, look, the president may be acting expressly pursuant to a statute. When the president is acting pursuant to a statute, he's probably okay because he would be okay if Article II allowed him to do this independently or if Article I allowed Congress to give him permission. If either of these things is true, he's on, he's on firm ground, so he's probably going to prevail in any dispute when he is acting in an emergency pursuant to a statute. There may be cases when the president acts in defiance of a statute. And in those cases, he, according to Justice Jackson, the president's emergency power would be extremely limited if it, if it exists at all because he would have to say, well, the Constitution gives me some Article II authority to respond, but not only does it give me Article II authority, but it is special Article II authority. It is Article II authority that Congress was not allowed to regulate because if Congress was allowed to regulate the authority, then he couldn't defy Congress's statute. And he regarded this as a very limited category and uh, even and one that would not help the president even in a case like Youngstown. He says, a state of war may exist without a formal declaration, but no doctrine that the court could promulgate would seem to me more sinister and alarming than that a president whose conduct of foreign affairs is so largely uncontrolled and even in, is unknown could enlarge his mastery over the internal affairs of the country by committing the nation's armed forces to some foreign venture. So the fact that the president sent troops to Korea did not change the analysis. He didn't have any more power to violate a statute than he otherwise would. In the third category was when the president is acting in the absence of either a statute that says you may do this or a statute that says you may not. And in such a case, uh, Justice Jackson said, the president can still rely only on his independent powers, but there is a zone of twilight in which he and Congress may have concurrent authority or in which its distribution is uncertain. Therefore, congressional inertia, indifference, or quiescence may sometimes, at least as a practical matter, enable, if not invite, measures on independent presidential responsibility. Now, after Professor Dahmerin speaks, I could perhaps go into this in more detail if there are questions. But basically, the idea is that the president may have emergency powers when he's not violating a statute if there is some reason to think that Congress has gone along with this in a way that allows the court to say, even without express authority, we regard this as something Congress wants to happen. And I'll leave it at there and turn it over to Sasha. Ladies and gentlemen, I put on my jacket that mobilizes me better. <laughs> it's, it's a pleasure to be here. It's not my first time at the Mitchell Center. Uh, and uh, it's really an honor to be invited again and to speak about emergency powers in, in Russia and in the United States. Uh, this is a book. This is a book that uh, Professor Herman mentioned in the beginning of uh, uh, this presentation. Uh, it's dedicated to emergency powers in Russia and in the United States, um, well, in, as well as to, in some other countries of the world. All right. It's not a theater, so it's not a problem. It happens all the time when some big rock stars come to Russia and, <laughs> and David Bowie is on stage and 
a lot of phone calls coming in. Um, we have three books um, that have been published in Russia uh, about emergency powers. Uh, two of them were written by myself. And uh, the, first book, the first book was written in 1908, so there were no publications about emergency powers and no books about emergency powers in Russia between 1908 and uh, uh, the late 90s. And the main reason was, uh, well, you know, in the Soviet Union it was not a hot topic at all. Why? Because the powers of the Communist Party were not limited, basically. So there was no distinction between normal powers and emergency powers. So what's the point in, in studying emergency powers even uh, just because the normal powers are not limited? Um, I think that, um, and now and then we share this joke with Professor Shane, and uh, we have known each other for years, that, uh, well, on, on the one hand, of course, as scholars, we, we think that uh, it was a very good idea many years ago to start studying emergency powers when it was not a hot topic. But as citizens of our countries, of Russia and in the United States, it's very unfortunate that the subject of our research, emergency powers and national, uh, national emergencies, are becoming so urgent, and especially here in the United States after 9-11. Uh, I was in Detroit at that time, and uh, well, it was pretty scary to be in Detroit in September and in the fall 2001 overall. Um, also, I always try to, uh, to get first-hand information about law enforcement uh, uh, provisions and agencies here in the United States. And at one point, I asked a friend of mine uh, who was a cop uh, in Detroit to take me on a night shift with him. And it was October 2001, and you remember this white powder scare. Uh, so not the best time, indeed. Uh, I don't think that we can speak about any great power uh, in the world that has a perfect record of emergency powers, or of using emergency powers. Uh, Professor Shane uh, shared some, um, some information and some uh, conclusions uh, with, with all of us about uh, emergency powers here in the United States. I also wrote something uh, about it in my book. And uh, one of those things that I mentioned in the book was that it was a pretty unpleasant discovery for the U.S. Congress back in 1971 to find out that some uh, national emergencies that were proclaimed back in 1933 by FDR and by President Truman in 1950, that they were still in effect in 1971. Well, apparently the Congress lost track of those emergency powers, or of, of those national emergencies, whereas the White House never forgot about it. Uh, for instance, when President Kennedy decided to introduce embargo uh, against Cuba, he used, as, as a legal prerequisites, he used the national emergency which was introduced by President Truman when, uh, and that was during Korean War. So the, what does Korean War, a national emergency declared because of the Korean War, has to do with embargo against Cuba? So it's always very interesting when you write about emergency powers to see also how uh, the separation of powers play into uh, this, this game of, of using emergency powers. When writing my book, I uh, wrote not only about Russia today, but also, of course, about Imperial Russia. And the case of Imperial Russia, the case of uh, the Russian Empire, uh, is a case of a country that did not defend itself adequately. That's the case when the powers and the mechanisms of self-preservation um, in the Russian Empire were not used adequately. That's one of my observations and one of the reasons why the, the Bolshevik Revolution happened in 1917. Um, the um, Penal system, criminal system, um, uh, criminal code in, in Russia, in Imperial Russia, was extremely mild. Uh, 
Uh, overall, at that time, we had um, a regular cop, an average cop, who had a beat, you know this term, a beat, that, that area that you patrol, uh, which was equal to uh, 1,800 miles. And uh, how many people did he have there in that beat? Between 50,000 and 100,000. Um, well, if you remember the revolutionaries, uh, and if you remember the name of, uh, the, uh, of someone who became the founder of Chika, and Chika was a prototype of KGB, Felix Zerzhinsky, uh, that's uh, one of those typical cases when somebody, a revolutionary, was arrested six times, three times he was sentenced to, uh, to Siberian exile, uh, twice he escaped, once after serving seven days of his life sentence in, in Siberia before he was eventually captured. Uh, now, we have this really interesting um, situation. Uh, I mentioned um, uh, the, uh, that beat, a uh, regular beat that the, uh, uh, an average Russian cop used to have. Uh, now, take a look at the Russian rural models in, in Europe. Uh, in France, for instance, they had 50% more cops, even though France is 40 times smaller in terms of its population than, than Russia. Now, uh, I mentioned that, uh, from my point of view, there is no great power that has a perfect, correct, perfect record of emergency powers or using emergency powers. Uh, take a look at Germany, uh, Article 48 of the Weimar Constitution, and even before that, uh, notorious uh, emergency anti-socialist laws of 1878. Take a look at France with Jacobian terror and with, uh, with the way how uh, uh, rebellions were uh, suppressed in the 19th century. Well, here in the United States, we have, of course, not only the, we have mixed record uh, of, of using emergency powers as well. And, uh, um, well, uh, in uh, uh, coming closer to, uh, to Russia as we know it now and as we have it now, uh, one of the most, uh, uh, from my point of view, one of the most notorious cases of how emergency powers can be used uh, was the case of 1993. 1993, um, in September 1993, President Yeltsin decided to get rid of the parliament. It was not in the Russian Constitution that the president can dissolve the Russian parliament. Well, but Yeltsin just got tired of his parliament. He didn't have a problem with the parliament when he was a speaker of the parliament. But then the parliament decided to introduce presidency, and Yeltsin became the president, and from that moment he, he, he got problems with, uh, with, the, with the parliament that he had just several months before he became the president. So in 1983, he decides to dissolve it. When the parliament refuses to go away, uh, he brings tanks, and uh, you remember those terrible images of, of the Russian parliament on fire. Uh, what was the role of the Constitutional Court? We have the Constitutional Court of Russia, and the Constitutional Court of Russia, with nine votes against four, uh, declared that uh, what, what Yeltsin did is a constitutional coup, and that, uh, according to one of the provisions of the Russian Constitution, uh, he, uh, his, his powers as a president uh, uh, were terminated immediately. That was the case when, uh, unlike in America, when you have the uh, impeachment procedures, uh, there was a special procedure, uh, pr special provision in the Russian Constitution that if the president dissolves the parliament, then it doesn't even open a way for impeachment, but he basically terminates his own powers. And that was what, what the Constitutional Court said. What was the reaction of Yeltsin? Well, the Constitutional Court was shut down, uh, and the Constitutional Court basically didn't work until 1995. Um, well, that was the time when, uh, indeed, uh, we had a civil war in the center of Moscow, um, and uh, my students uh, may not remember it. And by the way, it's a pleasure, indeed, to see some of them in our class. 
uh, I mean, in, in, in this room here, it means that not everybody is, is already tired of me at, at, at the end of the semester, uh, which means that I'm not so, s such a bad professor, even though I speak funny English. Uh, um, so, um, you know, uh, when uh, we have an unknown number of people who were killed by uh, Yeltsin's forces in the center of Moscow, uh, nobody believes that official figures are correct. Official figures are about 170, whereas the New York Times, uh, when writing uh, about those events uh, from Moscow, the uh, New York Times reported that it was probably more than 1,000. Um, and uh, that's, of course, that's, that's terrible. Uh, and from my point of view, when you start shooting in the center of Moscow, uh, that's very easy to start shooting elsewhere. So from my point of view, that's a direct correlation between that dissolution of the Russian parliament and uh, violent suppression of the Russian parliament uh, in, uh, in the center of Moscow in September, October 1983, and the beginning of uh, the federal intervention to Chechnya that happened in December 1984. Well, um, all those things uh, were more emergencies um, de facto rather than de jure. We had one uh, state of emergency, which was declared according to legislation dedicated to, uh, to national emergencies, and that was in 1992, 1995, uh, in, in, in uh, another uh, uh, Republican in the Northern Caucasus, uh, and uh, uh, we had a conflict, an ethnic conflict between Ossetians and Ingush. The conflict, which was, uh, from my point of view, uh, well, was very unfortunate uh, consequence of what I call uh, legislative romanticism of, uh, uh, of the Gorbachev period. When Gorbachev came to power and when he began his uh, legal reforms, perestroika, as, as you know it, uh, one of those things which was adopted, one of those acts which was adopted, was an act on uh, rehabilitation of uh, repressed people. What people are known as repressed people uh, in, in Russia? We had several ethnic groups. Uh, that were deported from the places where they lived during World War II. Uh, for, well, well you, you remember how it happened here in the United States with Japanese Americans. So basically the same happened in Russia, not with Japanese Americans, but with some, some other small ethnic groups uh, that um, apparently collaborated um, um, quite extensively with, with the Nazi forces. So unlike it happened in Britain when, if you remember, uh, each and every German living in Britain was interviewed individually. And in each and every case, when the law enforcement agencies were coming to a conclusion that this person poses a threat uh, to national security of Britain, that person was detained. But Brits didn't deport all Germans in Britain uh, to some faraway place in, in, in Scotland. Uh, what we did with our small ethnic groups, several of them, uh, was pretty similar to what you did with Japanese Americans here. Uh, and, of course, the major difference here is that uh, America was and is a democracy, whereas Stalin's Soviet Union was a dictatorship. So uh, in the beginning of Perestroika, a special act was adopted on rehabilitation of those people who suffered under Stalin and who were relocated to, uh, to Siberia or to Kazakhstan. And one of side effects of that piece of legislation was that, that people uh, who were removed, who were sent away to Siberia and Kazakhstan, they began coming back to the places where I originally lived, like Angush, for instance. Angush is, is a small ethnic group from Northern Caucasus. Uh, but you know, it's, it's, uh, it's quite understandable. When you have two villages 
and you have Ossetians living in one village, and you have Ingush, oh, sorry, you have Ingush uh, people living uh, just across the river. And when all Ingush are gone, when all of them are put on train and they are allocated, and then people in the Ossetian village, when they see cows, and it's necessary to milk a cow, and they see empty houses, and, uh, well, basically an empty village. It's quite understandable that, that those Ossetians would move into the village of, of Ngush people, or the Ngush village where the Ngush people were living before them. And can you imagine that many years later, those Ngush people would start coming back, claiming their property and, and saying that, listen, we, we lived here before. Uh, so that was one of those, uh, uh, from my point of view, very unfortunate consequences of that act, when if you adopt this piece of legislation on rehabilitation of people, or certain ethnic groups that suffered under Stalin, then probably you need to introduce a mechanism how to avoid a conflict with, uh, with, with another ethnic group that took your houses or took their houses. So from my point of view, that conflict that we had between Ossetians and Ngush was to a very large extent artificial, and it was certainly a mistake of the reformers. Uh, but then we got this situation when it became necessary to introduce a state of emergency in that region just because Ngush began killing Ossetians and Ossetians began killing Ngush. Um, the state of emergency uh, happened there between 1992 and 1995. Uh, the biggest uh, uh, result uh, was that uh, the, uh, the number of casualties was basically reduced to, to zero. Uh, but overall, the situation hasn't been solved yet. Uh, and that's, that's one of those things that, that Putin needs to, uh, to, to do. Um, or somebody who will come after Putin in 2008. Um, uh, well, in two words, that's, uh, from my point of view, the most uh, important things about emergency powers that I wanted to share with you, even though, of course, well, just don't forget about, about that book, uh, and hopefully it will be available e here at the uh, library of, uh, of the Ohio State University. Uh, and uh, as Professor Shane suggested, uh, he will wrap up this discussion, uh, uh, I mean, our presentation, and then we'll open uh, time for questions and answers. So I don't say goodbye yet. I'm sorry, my jacket immobilizes me, so. Um, I, I guess the point that I wanted to um, pick up on from uh, what Sasha was saying is the following. Although the United States has had, does have, has had a, a more, a longer his, and more continuous history of having some formal law on national emergencies, of course, um, the general point is correct that having uh, well-written statutes does not necessarily mean that you have a well-managed legal regime for uh, actually uh, handling emergencies. And although um, you know, Congress was distressed, um, as Sasha points out, by the uh, proliferation of national emergencies that never seemed to end, the fact is that if you look at the history of um, emergency, emergency powers gone awry, they really, in my view, don't deal with those contexts, but in situations of wartime. And I, I guess a point that I didn't get to is, although I, I guess I mentioned in passing, is that there is a conventional understanding among constitutional lawyers that a formal declaration of war does extend the president's domestic national emergency powers, although, A, it is not clear how far they get extended, except to say that during World War II, for example, when President Roosevelt seized property uh, in the way that President Truman did, nobody even litigated it uh, because it was assumed that this was a permissible thing to do in the, in the face of declared war. 
Um, so we don't know how far those powers extend, and we don't know how far Congress could regulate them, uh, even though I think Justice Jackson would say uh, the answer was quite substantially. But the worst example, of course, of a wartime national emergency response is what constitutional lawyers think of as the Korematsu case, the case that involved uh, the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. Um, and that episode, and I think what we're going through now, again, hammers home this point that formal legality is not all you need to assure uh, the appropriate handling of emergencies. I mean, technically, uh, well, the result in Korematsu was produced by a couple of things. I mean, one, and it's hard, it's hard to sort of rank them in, in order of uh, implausibility, but technically there was no incarceration order. The order was an exclusion. Japanese Americans were simply excluded from being anywhere except within these camps. <laughs> and so the Supreme Court said, we don't have to face the question whether they could be incarcerated. The question is, does the president have the authority to exclude them? Then it is true, I mean, it is conventional uh, judicial response to uh, claims of military fact-finding that the court is deferential to military fact-finding. But the executive branch had presented things to the Supreme Court that it knew uh, were dubious. Um, weapons of mass, oh, I'm sorry, got the wrong word, I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I just got time lapse there. Um, part of the case that was made and was that um, Japanese Americans were suspected of standing on the beaches of the Pacific and signaling offshore. And the FCC looked into these rumors and wrote a report saying this is not happening. This is not true. The existence of that report was not disclosed to the Supreme Court, even though it existed and the Justice Department was aware of it at the time the case was argued. And this sort of, you know, I, I don't want to take, uh, I do want to leave time for questions, or I could go into sort of great detail about what we're doing now in Guantanamo and the Hamdi case and the national, uh, and the NSA and so forth. But that fact, the idea that this federal report existed was not brought to the court's attention, always hammered home something to me, and I'm a Justice Department alumnus myself, that in national emergencies, a critical form of self-discipline is the conscientious practice of law by executive branch lawyers. And one of the most troubling aspects of what has gone on with regard to the National Security Agency, what's gone on with regard to Guantanamo, is that legal opinions are being written that are preposterous. I'm not saying a good legal opinion could not be written for the same position, but the arguments that are made, you know, do not pass the straight face test. And I'll give you what I consider the most blatant example. In the, in the opinion of the Justice Department that said that the President could authorize torture without restriction by Congress, if need be, the, court, the, the Justice Department said the statute, in any event, allows the President to authorize the infliction of physical pain so long as we re do not reach the point of permanent organ damage or imminent death. How did they get that definition of torture? Well, the torture statute refers to severe physical pain, and they found someplace else in the United States Code, I don't know if you've ever seen the United States Code, it looks like the rule book encyclopedia, or the Encyclopedia Britannica, many, many books. And in all of those books, they found that phrase in another statute. And that's what it meant in that other statute. It meant organ failure or um, 
or risk of death. What was the other statute? When you would be entitled to emergency Medicare benefits. For a lawyer to cite that as relevant to the question of the President's emergency power to authorize torture is a matter, I think, of national shame. And I'll conclude there. Why don't I call and then, but you can address either of us. Yeah, you are, uh, Peter, you mentioned that the power of the president to uh, intervene in domestic affairs is extended during times of war. Right. So I was wondering, Tasha, if there is a similar uh, kind of principle operative in uh, Russian law, whereby Okay. Um, well, that's universal, that when you uh, introduce, a, introduce a state of emergency, certain rights and freedoms are to be restricted. Uh, in international law, international law does not prohibit restriction of rights and, freedom, uh, and freedoms when a state of emergency is introduced. However, certain rights and freedoms cannot be restricted even when you have a state of war. And these are th so-called uh, non-derogable rights, like, for instance, right to life, uh, right to not to not to be uh, a subject of torture uh, and certain other rights that cannot you cannot touch it even if you have a state of emergency in in your country frankly i don't see any major uh, extension of presidential powers under putin because the, what we have the biggest problem that we have at this moment is not emergency powers but normal powers normal powers according to the russian constitution of 1993 1993 normal powers of the russian president are extensive. It's not even necessary for him to introduce a state of emergency to use those powers. And uh, the Russian constitution of 1983 was not adopted by Putin. It was adopted by Yeltsin. Uh, and uh, frankly, I don't see uh, uh, anything that has happened under Putin that could be compared to that shame that we had under Yeltsin when Yeltsin was the president, including the suppression of, of the Russian parliament of 1983 or the first Chechen campaign. Uh, or, well, numerous other crimes and mistakes that he committed. So that's just the short answer to, to your question. Thank you. <laughs> 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 On the spot? Are there any sorts of limits? No. I mean, he, uh, information is classified pursuant to an executive order that allows the president to, de you know, complete authority to declassify. Um, this is not a power that Congress has restricted. So um, now, you know, there may, there might be questions whether in declassifying it, he actually has to sign something that says I hereby declassify. There may be a legal question whether if he actually got on the phone and started reading a document to a reporter, that would amount to legal declassification. But aside from the formalities, his authority to declassify is, is entirely plenary. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, if you allow me just, just to return to, uh, and, and uh, uh, please allow me to give a, a little bit uh, longer uh, answer to the first question, the, the question that Professor Hudson from Wittenberg University asked me. Uh, 
Um, I realize that not everybody in this room are familiar with the Russian Constitution and with, with the Russian constitutional system. Uh, the Constitution of Russia of 90, 1993 is super presidential constitution. Uh, the powers of the executive are extremely strong and extremely wide. We don't have checks and balances, unlike what you have here in the United States. We have virtual separation of powers, but when you don't have checks and balances between those powers, when you have extremely weak um, uh, uh, legislature comparing to, to, to the president, then that was my point, that when you have this uh, super presidential constitution and super presidential uh, republic, then the president doesn't need to introduce any, any additional uh, powers, doesn't need to, uh, to, uh, uh, to get any additional powers. He can use his normal presidential powers from that super presidential constitution uh, quite extensively. Just several examples. Um, that's the question that I always ask my, my American students. Uh, who guarantees your rights? Who is the guarantor of your rights here in the United States? Well, if you're in trouble, of course, first you call 911, and then cops, of course, are supposed to help you. But, but in the end, well, you go to court in order to, to defend your rights. Who is the guarantor of rights and freedoms of, of the Russians, according to the Russian Constitution? The president. And who can guarantee my rights if they are suppressed, if, if I have a problem with my president? That's the question. And apparently the courts are not so effective to, to defend me from a president, according to this Constitution that we have. Uh, now, oh, impeachment procedures. Don't we have impeachment procedures? Don't we have impeachment provisions in the Russian Constitution? Yes, we do. Just like we discussed in, in, in my uh, last class uh, of post-communist law on Tuesday, uh, you have such a complicated provision in the Russian Constitution to impeach the president, um, comparing, for instance, to American provisions in, in the U.S. Constitution. And moreover, not just complicated provisions of when you are supposed to to get two-thirds of votes in the lower chamber, in the upper chamber. Also, you have the participation of the Constitutional Court and the Supreme Court. But all this procedure, all this impeachment procedure is to be wrapped up, com completed within three months. You missed a day, start from, and you return to square one. And uh, another very unfortunate uh, uh, um, side effect of adoption of that Constitution of 1983 under Yeltsin, once again, not under Putin, was that uh, it was used as a model for certain other super-presidential uh, reg regimes in some other republics of the former Soviet Union. And for instance, in Belarus, they moved that uh, impeachment provision from uh, the Russian constitution to an even higher extreme when, well, they don't have, it, it's not necessary for the president, uh, for the president of uh, uh, Belarus if uh, uh, he is facing impeachment uh, to have participation of both courts, Supreme Court and Constitutional Court is just one of them. But the whole, uh, the whole uh, impeachment uh, pr uh, procedure is to be completed within one month. <laughs> so, you know, uh, de facto, uh, the president of Belarus is unimpeachable just like the president of Russia. Uh, my biggest concern here was that when I was speaking about that in the, 60, uh, in the 90s, when I was, uh, I have been teaching in the United States since 1994. Uh, I began teaching Russian constitutional law at Cornell University in January 1994 just three weeks after adoption of the new Russian Constitution, so it was very timely. But my point was that uh, for some reason in the 90s, when uh, Russia was headed by pro-American, uh, corrupt but friendly, uh, drunk, uh, as he is called, as he, call, as he, he is called by, by the Washington Post today, uh, then it was not a problem that we have this uh, super-presidential, semi-authoritarian Constitution. 
And when did State Department, in its annual report about rights and freedoms in the countries of the world, when did State Department begin writing that the Russian Constitution does not have checks and balances? When Putin came to power, someone who is not apparently corrupt and drunk like his predecessor, was it under Putin that we got all those problems with the Russian Constitution and with those super presidential powers? No? Okay. Constitution is silent on it, or is it, is it, is it because 
our legislatures don't put time limits on delegations of, of uh, emergency powers? Right. Well, the short answer is yes. Um, that's why they they persisted. Uh, the statutes were rewritten as part uh, as a reaction to uh, the congressional investigation uh, Sasha mentioned, so that there it, there supposedly is more more of a limitation. But the powers themselves are not necessarily, despite the so-called reforms, the powers are still quite extensive, and the president has substantial discretion to keep them going. Uh, let me add a little bit. Uh, um, in my answer to this question, uh, Russia, from this point of view, of course, is, 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 belongs to the civil law tradition. Uh, and in the civil law tradition, unlike in the common law tradition, and the common law tradition is what you have here and what you have in Britain, for instance. But in civil law tradition, uh, the, um, uh, those formalities regarding uh, under what circumstances you can introduce a state of emergency, whether it's necessary to, if you, the president, introduce a state of emergency, whether it's necessary or not for the parliament somehow approve them, and what is the extension period uh, and how long those emergency powers can be exercised. Uh, those provisions in, in the continental tradition are more, are more more strict and more definitive than here in the United States. Uh, in Russia, for instance, you are supposed, if you, the president, introduces a state of emergency, it's necessary for the upper chamber of the Russian Parliament Federation Council to approve a state, a state of emergency within 30, uh, uh, 72 uh, hours, within three days. Uh, and then a national emergency, if it's a national emergency, then it is supposed to last for 30 days. If you want to extend it, then you need to, to issue a new decree, and then you need to, to get an approval of the Federation Council again. And if it's a regional emergency, if it's what, what, say, what we in the constitutional law call it uh, uh, federal intervention, uh, then it can be proclaimed for, sev uh, for 60 days, two months. But then again, you need to, to issue a new decree, and then you need to, to get participation of the Federation Council to approve it. That's one of the reasons, for, uh, from my point of view, why uh, a state of emergency was never introduced in Chechnya. Because it was clear to Yeltsin that the Federation Council would never approve this state of emergency in Chechnya if you introduce a state of emergency there. So what happened to President Yeltsin and subsequently President Putin just using their uh, powers as commanders-in-chief. They just moved troops there, uh, and that's it. One point also a little more, and that it, because I, I am, and maybe it is just because I was a Justice Department lawyer, so I take this stuff to heart, but um, I was at the Justice Department during the Iranian hostage seizure, and time after time, the Attorney General said to the White House, I know this is serious, I know you really want to do X, you can't do it. So, you know, it, there are lawyers who say no, and in some way, and again, I don't mean this as a partisan statement either, but if you're looking just in terms of professional responsibility for a, a good story, a, a role model story. Um, as you know, in the wake of 9-11, the president issued an order. I don't call it a notice. I don't know why he didn't call it an executive order. It's basically an executive order uh, authorizing uh, the detention and trial of enemy combat non-citizen enemy combatants. And uh, the trial was to be pursuant to military commission, and the military commissions were to be regulated by uh, Defense Department regulation. I think it's a fair guess when that was drafted in the White House, the assumption would be that doing it through military commission would give the administration a somewhat easier ride than if they had to, certainly than civilian courts and probably even courts martial. The Army, the, um, the JAG lawyers for the defendants in Guantanamo have been as zealous in playing their professional role as anyone could hope a lawyer would be. And they have played 
they have been as steadfast for their, you know, again, they may win or they may not, but the one argument, nobody, nobody will ever be able to, you know, to stand up and say, these were lawyers who were in some, you know, threw in the towel or, you know, were not living up to their professional responsibility. And again, there's nothing other than institutional self-discipline to produce that result. say two things. First of all, um, I share your puzzlement, but the, the phenomenon you're describing is not monolithic. And indeed, you know, there, there are many constitutional, political conservatives slash constitutional conservatives who have been quite explicit in uh, expressing their chagrin about these claims of executive authority. Uh, you may recall Bob Barr, the former congressman from Georgia, has been just an, a hugely outspoken critic of the Bush administration's uh, claims for executive authority. So. You know, not everybody is inconsistent in, in quite that way. The most, uh, the lawyer, uh, perhaps most responsible for what I've called the implausible opinions of the Justice Department about torture and so forth, is now a law professor at Berkeley named John Yu. And, and Professor Yu, whatever our difference is, has rendered the world a service by actually writing a book that does lay out in detail what he believes is the theory of constitutional interpretation that justifies these results. And it purports to be an originalist theory. And his theory is the following. Article 2 starts with the words, the executive power shall, is, shall be vested in the President of the United States. He interprets um, the slices that he looks at of British history, colonial history, Articles of Confederation period history to say that the framer on the street, you know, the, the ordinary person would have understood that that phrase executive power basically gave not basically, it gave to the president all the authority the king would have had over foreign and military affairs except what was specifically subtracted or limited by some other express constitutional provision. In my, in my humble opinion, it, it's an utterly implausible argument for the reason that you just said. If you look at the actual powers that are spelled out, nobody in 1789 would have walked away from the Constitution thinking that, not even Alexander Hamilton. But, um, but that's their argument. The argument is that um, what the founding generation thought, that they knew what the phrase executive power meant and what it meant was what the king could do, except now occasionally you would need Senate concurrence. It's a breathtaking book. I think it, 
my answer is yes, but it might not be the same answer you get out of, you know, General Gonzalez, uh, Attorney General Gonzalez. Going to the National Security Agency surveillance. The problem, of course, is that when the Supreme Court decided, number one, that electronic surveillance was a search covered by the Constitution, and it was a search even in a national security context, the court in the 1970s said to Congress, if you don't want the warrant procedures here governed by the usual probable cause standard that would apply in a criminal proceeding, you can write a separate procedure that will apply just to these national security warrants. That's what led to the creation of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. The Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act explicitly takes cognizance of the possibility we might find ourselves at war. And if we find ourselves at war, the president may have an exigent need to get a hold of this stuff that doesn't allow even for the pretty easy procedures of, of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act. So the statute says expressly, upon a declaration of war, the president shall be authorized to engage in surveillance without warrants for, for 15 days. And the thought was, war changes things, but we don't want to let it go on forever. 15 days will enable us to meet and decide what, if anything, has to be adjusted in this scheme in order to give the president appropriate powers for wartime. We have not declared war in Afghanistan. The statute that authorizes the use of military force is called the Authorization for the Use of Military Force in Afghanistan. And the administration has made exactly the argument you've implied, which is, they've said we can use um, appropriate military force. This includes, obviously includes surveillance, and we can do this until we've conquered the war on these, you know, we've ended the war on these terrorists. To believe that argument, you would have to think that Congress, having written a statute expressly about declared war, limited the authority to 15 days. But when they were thinking about something that wasn't a declared war, even though they never mentioned surveillance at all, they implicitly gave authority till the end of time. <laughs> As I sometimes say to my students, sometimes I can report them but not explain. <laughs> Uh, 
and the vigilance of our elected representatives. Okay, thank you. Wow. Does that make you feel better? If you're going to break this down, you would think more that the, you know, the divided government would be more, uh, we'd have more protection in the Russian case and in the U.S. case than in cases where one side gets to define the rules. I guess that's my rambling question. Paraphrase a little bit more deeply. It's a very good question. And uh, I'm very pleased to, to, to tell you that. Uh, well, on the one hand, of course, the Constitution, the Russian Constitution of 1983, is pretty vague in its provisions regarding emergency powers. On the other hand, uh, in 2002, nine years after adoption of the, uh, of the uh, Russian Constitution, a special act, federal constitutional act on a state of emergency was adopted in Russia. So, and that once again happened not under, not under Yeltsin, but under Putin. And act, I'm pretty satisfied with that act. Uh, it's definitely, it definitely limits the, the emergency powers uh, in, in case of introduction of a state of emergency by, by the Russian president. So oh, it's, it's not my headache anymore. We, ha we, we got the act. It didn't happen immediately after adoption of the Constitution. It took nine years to adopt that act, but the State Duma uh, did it, and President Putin signed it into effect. So I'm very pleased to tell you about that. I'm not sure myself that there is a, a better answer than what I said in response to the prior question. Unless the public is vigilant in the protection of its own liberties, then you're always relying on the conscience of this or that whistleblower. Uh, you know. but, but the conscience has worked pretty well historically in American history with the legal profession. You said in your own experience uh, well, it's working pretty well. You know, it, I, 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 I witnessed it at work. Um, you know, we don't know what we don't know. So, you know, there could be many horrible things that happen that remain secret. But, you know, one could make the argument that however horrendous our imperfect record has been at moments, you know, given 200-something years, it doesn't look too bad. Um, certainly, you know, if you look at the federal judiciary, for example, I mean, most federal judges are subject, uh, most federal judges at the trial level don't get actually get appealed. Um, they very rarely get reversed. I mean, judges are pretty independent actors. Occasionally there's a scandal, but in 200 years, the number of times we've actually had federal judges behave in a way that would lead you to think, you know, how did this guy get, or how did this man or woman get on the bench? Or just a handful. So I don't, I don't think, I think professional culture really can be a powerful force, but um, it's tough when well, it, it's tough when cultural or political or other forces are basically telling you, if you want to advance in the world, um, this, don't behave this way. I'm sorry. 
Well, <laughs> what can I say? Gore v. Bush. Yeah. Question for Dr. Delmer. Was it Des Moines? I'm not sure. Um, President no, not Des Moines. Not Des Moines. Domrin. I like Iowa, but my, my <laughs> last name doesn't have anything to do with Des Moines. <laughs> Very good question. Uh, uh, well, Putin is so popular because uh, the 90s, the, the time of his predecessor, are so unpopular. Uh, in the 90s, uh, when Yeltsin was in power, the reduction of industrial output of Russia was approximately 54%. Uh, even during World War II, when 27 million people lost their lives, and when half of our territory, European territory, was occupied by Nazis, the reduction of industrial output uh, in the Soviet Union was about 30%. So in those peaceful years of so-called reforms in the, in the 90s to have a reduction of 54%, it's, well, it's, it's a sign of, of catastrophe, not just degradation. Uh, right now, uh, I'm very pleased to report, and that's official, uh, this year uh, Russia became 12th largest economy in the world. Uh, Russia's gold reserve is fifth largest gold reserve in, in the world. Uh, what is going on right now is uh, the reduction of poverty, uh, is uh, basically the, the uh, improvement of quality of life. That's the main explanation why, why Putin is so popular. Uh, I don't belong to his party. I didn't vote for him. That's just to make uh, the record straight. Uh, and uh, I give him my conditional support. When he is right, it should be, well, praised. When he's wrong, he should be corrected. And he's making a lot of mistakes. Once again, I don't belong to his fan club. Uh, moreover, that yes, well, that's correct, that's correct. But the, I got acquainted with him in 1991, and when you know somebody long before this person becomes the president, you apparently know more about him than most of your compatriots. That was one of the reasons why I didn't vote for him in 2000, and I didn't vote for him in 2004. <laughs> uh, but once again, once again, he has my conditional support, whereas his predecessor didn't have my support, even con conditional support. Uh, um, he can do whatever he pleases to do right now, and he will be supported by the majority of the Russians. The only way how he can, how he cannot extend his powers and not uh, amend the constitution is his willingness not to do that. Uh, and uh, um, judging by, by what I know about the situation in the country, uh, it's most unlikely that the constitution will be amended and that he will extend his power uh, beyond 2008. 2008 is very soon, so we will see whether I'm wrong or whether I'm right. Yes, please, Lydia.
Well, it's, it's not the first time when some people um, suggest that, that probably we should start with this process. Um, even before, um, uh, it was probably about a year ago when the Speaker of the Upper Chamber Federation Council, Sergei Mironov, suggested that we should extend uh, uh, Putin's powers. Or, um, you know, that's, that's another tricky way how you can extend your powers as a president. That's how it happened in Central Asia, for instance, in Kazakhstan when in the middle of the second term you adopt a new constitution and your previous time that you've been the president, don't, that time doesn't count. So basically the new constitution, you run again. Well, so somebody who was uh, elected as the president of Kazakhstan in, in 1990, he is still the president of Kazakhstan. And according to the new constitution, he has just been reelected and he will stay in power, well, probably indefinitely. And in fact, we got one region uh, or one former republic in the, so in the former Soviet Union, uh, Turkmenistan, where the president became lifetime president. So, well, those cases are definitely the extreme cases, and I'm very pleased that uh, that's not what we have in Russia, that comparing to those uh, extreme cases uh, in Central Asia or in Azerbaijan, for instance, when uh, presidency was inherited from father to son, that Russia, of course, looks much better than, than those <laughs> former Soviet republics. <laughs> thank you. Well, I want to thank both uh, Peter and Alex for coming for the very fast early on. We have to break, and I can see the crowd starting to dissipate a little. I want to thank all you for handling the heat. Uh, one thing we don't have emergency power to slowly to do is to get the air conditioning turned on. <laughs> but uh, thank you both very much for coming. Thank you.